you know, when you're at a 2,500 person public high school and you're wearing a letter jacket as a freshman and happen to be a starter because you're one of the few people that have played before, um, it was pretty awesome. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode here on Youth Inc. I want to take a second to thank our newest sponsor, Body Armor. Body Armor fuels this show and all of the youth teams that I work with here in the Charlotte area, which, of course, you guys know very well how much, how much we work with them and how much time we spend on the field. So thank you so much to Body Armor for joining us here on Youth Inc. Today's guest is Paul Rabel. A lot of you might know Paul from his legendary collegiate career at Johns Hopkins, um, where he was the star lacrosse player. He, he's widely regarded as the greatest lacrosse player in history. Um, gold medalist for Team USA. Well, Paul is the co-founder of Premier Lacrosse League, which has really taken lacrosse and put it on the map across the country. Um, you know, you put on TV, you follow it. They've really become a, a prominent professional sports league here in America. And it was a great conversation uh, to hear firsthand from Paul what his early youth experience was, not only in lacrosse, but through other sports, football, you know, whatnot that he played growing up. And and now see how how is he trying to change that youth experience in conjunction with their efforts with the Premier Lacrosse League and how they can tie the, the youth grassroots efforts with the professional level and kind of bring them all together. So I, I think you guys are going to find this super enlightening, super interesting. I know I learned a lot about the sport of lacrosse. Um, you know, at the youth level and kind of the pathways that lead to college and the pathways that, of course, lead beyond to, to the professional level that that Paul co-founded. So I, I hope you guys enjoy this episode uh, with Paul Rabel here on You Think. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode here on You Think. Um, as I've said before, as we kind of go on this journey here on You Think of exploring all the different avenues and paths of youth sports, um, there's going to be a lot of them that I am the first to admit that I do not know a lot about. And those are the conversations that I'm the most excited about, right? To learn, to educate not only myself, but as a result, educate the viewers. And today is one of those episodes. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Paul Rabel. So Paul, I, I thank you so much for, for joining us here. I have a lot of questions. I am not a lacrosse aficionado by any standard. So <laughs> I appreciate you joining us here because uh, I think this is going to be a, a great conversation. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Um, I would say a couple of things. One, uh, don't be ashamed and no one be ashamed of listening and not knowing lacrosse. That's part of the opportunity that presented itself to us and why we started the PLL is that we felt like, damn, this is a sport that's been around for a thousand years. It's a Native American game. It's the first game of the Americas. It's been in the Olympics in 1904, 1908. It's been played at the college level men's and women's since the inception of the NCAA. Uh, and the pro game was battered for years. And so why is there a disconnect? Uh, that's what we started looking at. And, and a lot of it is is what we'll talk about today, um, starting at the youth level. And then certainly what we've addressed is at the professional level. But uh, again, appreciate you having me on. It follows your career. I, I am. I will neg you a little bit, a little surprised given you're a New Jersey native. I mean, you know, I know. Northeast type of guy. I know. Notre Dame, they have a good lacrosse program. I you just You were just tunnel vision on football, huh? You know, we didn't have <laughs> lacrosse in my high school, right? Really? Like I, I, at the time that I was coming up in the, you know, the early 2000s, growing yep. up in New Jersey, a, the, a lot of the private schools had lacrosse, right? Yep. So there was a lot of lacrosse being played. But in my town, our high schools didn't, we have it now. But at the time, we didn't have lacrosse. Um, it was just starting to get introduced at some of the other public schools in like a club format, kind of like they did yeah. with hockey. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we we just we grew up. We played baseball. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, and I know Dude. I know I know back home now 
mean, lacrosse has taken over. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, I grew up in Maryland and people go, oh, that, that's why you play lacrosse group in Maryland. But the area that I grew up in was a district outside of D.C. And it didn't have lacrosse either. I, I started playing when I was in middle school uh, and I played only rack. And then the high school team that I played for didn't have a JV program. Um, and, uh, and so then as I zoom out and think about it, the hotbeds considered Maryland, New York, but it's really Baltimore and Long Island. So if you're not in Baltimore, you know, it's, it's not as, as dense of a sport. I mean, I grew up with hoops and football um, and played all the sports. So instead of like stealing this podcast, why don't I give it back to you? No, 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 that's why you're here. Trust me. Our viewers, (laughs) they hear enough from me. They want to hear from you. So I want to dive into it. You brought it up, right? It's a game that's been around for a thousand, you know, a thousand years has a native American kind of background. You mentioned early 1900s, it's being played you know, in the Olympics and it's been NCAA, you, you, you nailed all those points. So I guess my question is why, like what, what have you found has been a little bit of the resistance or a little bit of the, of the pushback for it to really break through like it is now, right? Like yeah, why yeah. didn't the environment that lacrosse is operating in today, why didn't this happen 20 years ago? Ooh, so I think there's, there's three like mutually inclusive ways, but they're, they're each distinct. So if you think about the history of lacrosse versus other equipment sports, call it football, hockey, golf, um, the difference between football, hockey, lacrosse, and golf is that football received public funding in the sixties and seventies to distribute equipment at the youth level. So when you and I and everyone played football, Pop Warner or Rec, we were given our helmet and pads. Those are two of the most expensive pieces of equipment to access. And if we look at the history of this country and the, the best, most beautiful games in the world, they have the lowest barrier to enter. Accessibility is across the board. It's why soccer is a global game. All you need is a ball. All right. It's why hoops has taken off too, because we have basketball courts in every neighborhood and all you need is ball. In football, your equipment is largely donated or it's part of the public funding route. Lacrosse, hockey, golf missed the mark. And if you look at the wealth caste system and history in America and the socioeconomic gap, it just inherently limits access. So, so that's number one and kudos to football in America and why it really took off because lacrosse was being played in the Ivies exclusively, just like football was played in the Ivies exclusively because they were both limited access sports. So that's, if you look at it side by side, um, and then if you look at just kind of where lacrosse missed the mark versus those two other sports, hockey and golf, is hockey is more of a global game um, and had a really good professional institution in the NHL over the last hundred years um, that has allowed its growth to trickle down from the top down. But hockey really struggled in the 80s and 90s and current ownership groups were buying franchises for pennies on the dollar not too long ago. Um, and now with modern media and other advances, we've seen hockey really take off. Um, and then golf, the same thing. You look at the professional body and in, in the PGA tour and, and stars like Jack Nicholas and stuff with, uh, with lacrosse, the professional game has largely been non-existent players have been underwaged. Um, it would be like football in the sixties if it never, uh, increased its players wages. Um, and then the last piece I would say around youth lacrosse emerging absent of what we've done at the PLL. Um, is I, I think that what we've seen with science and health concerns related to contact sports, 
um, and you can speak to this more than anyone, parents are just erring on the side of, of caution more, especially at the youth level. I think that's why we're seeing more flag football take off versus contact. Um, and lacrosse has less contact than football. So I see it's seeing some spill over there and then big markets like new England where baseball is King. I played in Boston for the first seven years of my professional career. And I was just hearing about it from local politicians to business owners, to parents that damn, my kids aren't playing baseball anymore. They want to play lacrosse. So there was just kind of this organic shift. And I think that has to do with a lot of the game getting recognition across new media, like YouTube and Instagram and Twitter and such. Yeah, my kid's school here, I, I live in Charlotte, and in North Carolina, lacrosse is huge. I mean, it is just blowing up. A lot of the best athletes in the springtime are not playing, you know, at my kid's school, they're not playing baseball anymore. You know, my kids yeah. play baseball, um, whatnot, but, you know, as they start looking into middle school and saying, what's our team going to be like? Most of the boys that they play basketball with, they play football with, those boys are in the spring. They all go and play lacrosse. It's, it's a really interesting shift. So I want to ask you, in Charlotte, we just got, major league soccer team right yeah. so there's a huge push right now and in an interest both male and female with young boys and girls into the youth you know access to soccer and it's kind of fed off now the presence of having this professional franchise so mm -hmm. in your experience now creating the PL and 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 kind of navigating this from the youth scene all the way now to the professional scene does the youth does the youth market drive the interest in the professional leagues does the existence of the professional leagues drive the interest of the youth? Like, do they feed each other? Like, wh yeah. what does your experience tell you there? So my kind of professional cap as a, as a league co-founder and president is that your primary focus is around sports fans, 21 to 34, tends to skew male if you're a male sport. Um, and so we can talk about it from football and men's lacrosse, which is what we run in the PLL. And uh, some of that 21 to 34 audience played lacrosse. Some of them didn't. Some of them had family that did or friends that did. But in the end, sports is a form of entertainment. So we can see participation dwindle at the youth level in the NFL, but the NFL continues to skyrocket in value. Right. We're never having conversation around more octagons opening up for 12 and under to learn the UFC <laughs> and yeah, they continue to grow. So, but I think that the, the previous regime in major league lacrosse, they were so focused on getting lacrosse participants in stands. They built their business model around how many kids play lacrosse, convert to butts and seats, can convert to eyes on screen. Um, that from my perspective is, is icing. It's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a great opportunity and you hope that participation is high. Adam Silver would say that, uh, much like a car salesman, the, the the easiest way to get someone to watch the NBA is to have them dribble a basketball. You want that someone to drive a car, they're 60% more likely to buy it. Um, and so I think that it is super valuable that we have growing participation, both boys and girls in lacrosse, that we're seeing more universities open up programs for men's and women's at the college level, that we're seeing more adult programs. And that is our core audience that we're focused on. But for the PLL to really go where we want it to go, we need to get the 180 million casual sports fans to tune in. Yeah. So the other day I'm on Twitter, I'm, I'm following Dan Orlowski, the game you said you just came from Connecticut and I've gotten to know yeah. Dan, um, you know, both as a player. And then obviously now with his work with ESPN and, and he was at the game and he was kind of live giving videos and, and he's really become a big lacrosse fan. And he's the first to admit he knows nothing about it, but there he is right. A prominent 
sports figure on TV now on social media. And he's in Connecticut in his home, you know, where he lives and he's become him and his boys have become like diehard lacrosse fans. So that, to your point, if you're a sports fan and you can put a really good product on the field, whether you have a great understanding of it or not, you can learn to appreciate it regardless of how much involvement or how much experience you've had as a player. hundred percent. And and we actually went to Charlotte in our second game of the season. It was the first time going to Charlotte in our four seasons so far. Um, and we know that the Hounds played there yeah. in the former league. Uh, and we went to the newly renovated American Legion Memorial Stadium. And then we had Luke Keekley come. We had Sam Darnold come. And we have a, a president's row that's like right on the 50-yard line and these fieldside seats that mimic a courtside seat in hoops. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing more guys and, and more uh, celebrity athlete women come to games and, and watch. And, and Dan came. Uh, Chris, Chris Krieger came uh, from uh, the Rangers this past weekend. Um, we even had, uh, Josiah, who's like the big NBA Twitter, um, you know, conversationalists and journalists. Um, so we're getting more people who, who knew about lacrosse and coming because of what you said, which is as long as the product is incredible and the environment is fun, then people feel like they have the license to go and check it out. Yeah. So, so take, it's so true. A buddy of mine, Chris Hogan, who played, played lacrosse at Penn state, then became a football player, then reinvented himself and went back and played professional yeah. lacrosse um yeah last year he what an athlete i remember one day he came over and he had his sticks in the backyard and we were out back and he's trying to teach my kids but it, it's just it's incredible the athletes and just when you watch it and you put it on even though if you don't know even know what's going on like watching it those guys out there are just incredible athletes so so take me back now okay you've mentioned the, the correlation whether it exists or not between the youth participation and then what you guys are doing at the professional level but so take me back now like what did the youth lacrosse experience look like when you and I were growing up, right? What, what did yeah. that look like? And now what does it look like? If I'm, a, if yeah. I, you know, I have three young kids, 11 and two nine-year-olds, like what would the lacrosse look like now versus what it looked like when you were coming up the ranks? Yeah. So I think, I think you're 37, right? I am. I'm 36. So okay. we're, we're about, yeah, we're, yeah you, you nailed it. Um, you have three kids. I have none. Um, so you can, <laughs> you can, uh, you can tell me more about their experience and, and I can probably estimate, uh, but it's kind of, I think it can be valuable because we both have uh, different perspectives. You have a bloodline perspective, which I can imagine is really, really difficult. And I can look at it more objectively because I don't have that bloodline connection to a son or daughter going through it currently. But when we, uh, when we were growing up, club lacrosse hadn't really started yet. It was primarily AU, which did a lot of their own fundraising. I remember doing like car washes and things like that. Um, so it wasn't kind of pay to play necessarily, but that was club and basketball that I saw. And then club soccer had developed and I had been uh, recruited to do both. And that's actually why I started playing lacrosse is I wanted to continue to play soccer and hoops um, and didn't want to do anything year round. So I had a third season to play with and my next door neighbors playing lacrosse and gave me his equipment. Uh, to try it out. So I played rec lacrosse for, for our local town rec called Montgomery Village Sports Association. Um, that took me into high school. And the public school that I went to my freshman year, they didn't have enough interest to field a JV team. So everyone was automatically on varsity. And you know, when you're at a 2,500 person public high school and you're wearing a letter jacket as a freshman and happen to be a starter because you're one of the few people that have played before. Um, it was pretty awesome. <laughs> and, and so I had this like inflated sense of self-worth. I remember, uh, but that hooked me because I was a much better hooper. 
Um, and I got the call up to varsity and playoffs is kind of like a thing my freshman year, but I was just better at lacrosse relative to the pool of players. So I, I, I think a lot about finding your passion and passion where that exists. And for me, um, it's really about finding what you're best at. And then if you get really, really good at that, it quickly becomes your passion. Um, so whether that is, you know, if you're a numbers person and you're an accountant, you become one of the best accountants in your city, in your state, in your country, you're flying first class everywhere. And you're working with incredible clients on massive dynamic projects or a lawyer or an athlete or an entertainer, whatever it is, your skill set is And mine, you know, I think ended up being lacrosse for the skills that are, are incorporated in the game. Uh, so then I started pulling on my parents to be like, well, um, I, I love this game. I think that I'm good at it. I know our team isn't good because I'm starting. Um, and I'd like to maybe play for a, a really good program in the state. So uh, they started reaching out to um, private school coaches. And one of them came to a camp I was doing in the summer, just an instructional camp. And it was DeMatha's coach. Um, and they were, they were and are still the most affordable private school in the state of Maryland. It's known as kind of a sports factory yep. for football, basketball, oh, yeah. wrestling, you name oh, yeah. it. So he ended up saying, hey, we'd love to take Paul. So I transferred in. And I remember um, my sophomore year stepping foot on campus and, and going to our first practice in the fall and feeling like those guys were college players. I was like, what the hell did I get myself into? Um, but my mindset was immediately uh, practice nonstop. And I would just mimic the guys on the team, like the seniors who had committed to play division one ball. Um, and then I'd gotten from my assistant coach, uh, access to some VHS tapes of Hopkins and Syracuse games, Virginia games. Cause those were only the only mediums you could watch when you and I were growing up, there wasn't access to YouTube. So for a sport like lacrosse, it wasn't on TV. It was largely up to your imagination or if you had access to a tape. So I would watch this final four game from 2000 of uh, Syracuse versus Hopkins every night. I knew every play. Cause I'd watched the same damn thing over and over. And that was a great way for me to learn. So, uh, no club system growing up, played rec, figured it out in high school. I had great parents that chased down the opportunity for me. Um, and then, uh, and kind of the rest was history. Yeah. So, so in today's world, so I, again, I totally young, different. In yeah. So that, well, that, I'm so glad you just described your, your background. Cause I find it so fascinating. You said, you know, rec, late kind of late development and both in the love of the, the passion and the love, but also in the skills and the understanding and the knowledge in today's world to learn a sport in high school is almost unheard of. Right. Like, and again, right. here you sit as arguably the best player in history of the sport. And you're telling us that you played rec ball. You started at 12, you played rec ball, and then you kind of learned it in high school and became good at it. That my next question, I think, you know, where I'm going yeah. now, compare and contrast that to today. I have, I have young kids that were, they're traveling and playing baseball tournaments. We're going to Florida there. I mean, the, the idea of picking up a baseball or picking up a lacrosse stick or learning football at the high school level in today's environment almost seems hard for any of us to imagine all of our kids have been taking lessons and camps and AAU and travel. Like what does that scene look like now? If, if, if you were growing up yes. in today's world, you're playing travel ball you're not playing rec base rec lacrosse and then going on to learn in high school. Right. I mean, that, that would be unheard of. Yeah. And, and there, I think there's just a, a lot of consumer psychology at play and, uh, and we can talk a lot about that, but yeah, the dive into that, that's interesting. Yeah, the reason why I, I, 
I don't think I would be playing rec. Um, is it just, I think just like anyone it's highly influenced by peer pressure. Of course. Um, and I think the biggest challenge, especially when you're like a young, you know, growing teenage boy, um, you know what you like to do, but then you're constantly looking over your shoulder and looking for approval. I think the, the biggest threat to rec right now, obviously, in addition to club is if you're not playing club rec is considered uncool. I don't think a lot of people feel good about playing rec. That was never a thing when we were growing up. And, and that's just has to do with uh, the influence of money, the influence of what it means to be cool gear, all that stuff that goes into, um, you know, the ecosystem of playing sports at a young age. Um, that's what I hate to see. I, I, we talk a lot about internally is, is what we can do to, to fund and resource and invest in the revival of rec lacrosse or just rec sports. I think that, uh, part of it could be a rebrand. Um, and the other part is just a, a sub substantive investment. Um, but when you're looking at, you know, the environment now, I guess, I guess it's kind of twofold. If you don't have, if you don't have the money to play club sports, then it's an afterthought. Otherwise you better be one of the best players in your class. Cause you'll get scholarships because these, these coaches, uh, want to win. And so they, they, they're kind of like hospitality managers, you know, like promoters or, yeah. uh, or, or like call it the towel group that yeah. uh, has to get, you know, all they care about is selling $25,000 tables. Um, and so they'll get all of the influential people in the room or celebrities so they can sell those $25,000 yeah. tables. So someone who's paying full freight for the top club program is helping fund the, uh, the business so that they can scholarship the best players, yep. um, and, and get them in the door. That's, that's another view I have on it. Um, I think that it can be advantageous and I think club sports are part of and necessary of the overall verticals growth, because if someone uh, wants to pay more for an elevated experience, that's always existed in business consumer product services. Um, it just can't be the entire moat. And, and that's the, the existential threat that we're up against. If someone wants to pay more for Greg Olson to coach their football player growing up and they can do that and they can fly their kid, that's, it's part of living in a capitalistic state and good on them, but it can't be the only option. Um, and I think those are the challenges. And so understanding the psychology of influence uh, will help us get to a destination that I think is, um, you know, I, I think is like market correcting in a way. And, and I think that's, that's so interesting because you can see it play out in every sport, right? That's not unique to lacrosse. I see it with my kids in basketball. I see it with my kids in oh, baseball. Yeah. Football's really, football's starting to get into this now with this whole seven on seven off season stuff, but the traditional tackle football model is still very rec oriented below the middle school, high school level. You know, you're, you're playing for your town, you're playing at some sort of association. So football is kind of the last hold out. And to your point, they probably have had the longest standing as far as the government funding and the ability yeah. for kids to access the sport. So that's, that's a big part of why they're able to kind of sit in their own category. But a couple, a couple uh, episodes back, we, we had, were brought on a panel. We went down to um, Washington DC as part of the project play summit with the Aspen Institute. And there was a bunch of specialists there. And one of the big 
um, keynote speak speeches was on the the death of the rec sports environment. And, you know, mm. so it, it's very similar to what you just said. It's, yeah, we understand that travel ball, quote unquote, AAU club, whatever you want to call it, is never going to go anywhere. But they said exactly what you did. They said, if that's the only outlet, we are really limiting the kids yeah. access to learning whether or not they love lacrosse, baseball, whatever it is. So I, I think it's an interesting segue. A, a big, I don't want to say a controversy or, or a big issue, but the access to lacrosse, you started at the top, mm. it is seen as a wealthy white yeah. guy sport, right? Whether that's true or not, that's how it is perceived in some circles. Like, mm. what are the ways that lacrosse as a sport, and then you guys with the PLL, is trying to kind of spearhead that and change that narrative that, no, we are a sport for everybody. We want great yeah. athletes. We like what is the approach of changing yeah. that that narrative with lacrosse just as a sport across the country? Well, I, I think the narrative shift is is being super transparent and being good storytellers uh, and being historical. So, number one is that it's an indigenous game. So, if we look at you know the reemergence of of civil rights and human rights uh, movement of twenty twenty, it was largely a focus on Black Lives Matter, but Black Indigenous and people of color. Um, so we're a sport that that contrary to to maybe most belief or a lot of belief is is indigenous. Um, and so when we have who I think is the best player in the world right now, Lyle Thompson, who lives in the Six Nations and plays for Cannons Lacrosse Club and scored four goals yesterday and is on Sports Center pretty regularly, that to me is is our opportunity, one of opportunities. Uh, to exclaim that story more because we're not saying, Hey, it's an indigenous game. And then you look on the screen and there's no indigenous players. Um, so that's number one. Number two is, is like, and this goes to the honesty thing. And, and, and you'll see this in our documentary that got into Tribeca and was just acquired by ESPN films. And we're going to announce its release date in the next week or so it's called fate of a sport. Um, and one of our interviewees is Jeffrey Wright who's this famous uh, actor. He's also an activist um, and he played lacrosse and just a wonderful human being. And he's talking about, which essentially lives in act two, um, lacrosse's reputation and its history. And he's just very, very clear around this not being a sport thing. This is actually an American thing, right? And so if you look at things that are expensive and difficult to access, and are geographically um, exclusive. That that's how this country has been for hundreds of years, and and that's not different than how golf is. Which you know you could argue with data, and you could argue with emotion. It's far more exclusive than a sport like lacrosse, where you actually have to then find a course that's expensive to play on. Like we just need a grass field. Yep. Um, and the same thing with hockey but you have to get ice time in America is really difficult and talk about the club fees and hockey. Um, and we actually on a percentage basis of black indigenous and, and uh, players in our league have more than the NHL on a percentage basis and, and golf combined. Um, so it's like, where did our reputation start building in that direction? Uh, talking honestly and openly about that. And then how do we shift it? So where are we investing in the communities um, to give more access to lacrosse versus just saying, oh, it's expensive and difficult to play. So we're just going to stay the course. Now we've got to work two, three, four times as hard because access is important because when more people have access to a boardroom decision or a game like lacrosse, it's going to become a better decision. It's going to become a better game. 
So, of course, access is always kind of at the key of every sport, right? That That's yeah. something that everyone's trying to to attack at some level. How much, though, along the lines of access, is there kind of a cultural shift, right? How much of a battle do you guys find? So, for example, I, when I played in Chicago, right, city, metropolitan type area, basketball was the culture of the city, right? Yeah. The, the kids growing up in the neighborhoods in the city, they grew up playing basketball, right? Then when I lived in Miami, when I went to school down there, you know, similar environment, similar city type urban environment, those kids grew up playing football. And then you go to so, so different parts of the country, there's like regional cultural acceptance to different sports. And whether that's across races or within a race, like how much do you guys like identify the cultural component to making lacrosse, quote, you know, quote unquote, cool if you're not in a traditional white family who you like, you know what I'm saying? There's, there's yeah. so much of oh, that sure. regionally, racially, like, what are you guys doing? You said you're good storytellers. Like, what are you guys doing to kind of open this up to say, Hey, it's cool to grow up in the inner city and come play lacrosse and be a great athlete and have another outlet. Yeah. I, I mean, there's, so just talking about the bears versus the bulls, um, you know, the team that wins tends to, um, create a lot of value and, and, and streamline in the community. And that's kind of like the old saying in sports is, uh, if you build it, they will come. And, uh, if you win, uh, they'll all celebrate with you. Yeah. And, uh, and we've seen in a modern environment of creators and influencers that, um, some of the most popular players or entertainers aren't actually the best. Uh, but I, I do try to fall back, uh, or try to hold on uh, to the notion that I think is tried and true that you need to win. And, uh, if you perform really well, that, uh, people are going to watch you and that's backed by ticket season ticket holders to viewership in markets where teams do well versus teams do not do well. Um, and I think about the 86 bears. And then I think about what the bulls did in the nineties with MJ. And so there's a swing, right. And, uh, if the bears start winning again, then they'll probably be that the, the the team that that uh, is covered more in Chicago over the Bulls, but it's really hard to compete with MJ. Anyway, um, when uh, when I think about lacrosse and ways that we can do it, we have our documentary that, like I said, it's going to come out on ESPN Plus and ESPN. Um, we're looking to do more scripted and unscripted content. So what F1 has seen, and a lot of people talk about Drive to Survive, seems like an obvious play, but they weren't the first to do it. Hard Knocks in the NFL have done it. Uh, the Ultimate Fighter in the UFC is really where they rebuilt or built their, their brand ethos. Um, and then it's, it's not just unscripted. Those would be unscripted docs. You even look at, I think what was the turning point for the NHL was mighty ducks. Um, what Friday night lights does. Um, and so not everything has to bear the shield of the league to, uh, to pass along the right cultural shifting message. Um, and so for us, um, we're building those and, uh, we had just announced our latest round of funding last week, uh, our lead, um, investor is churning group. Peter Churning is one of the best storytellers in the world. Then we had a group, uh, like 35 ventures come on, which is Kevin Durant and Rich Kleiman, uh, and the WWE. So all three are, are really kind of unique. And I think indicate the direction of, of where we want to take our storytelling and media, um, the three groups who do it really well. Yeah, it's super cool. I mean, it's kind of like the Wayne Gretzky effect, right? People wonder like why Los Angeles is kind of a hotbed for hockey. They have a great junior hockey program. Well, it's because when Wayne Gretzky was out there and the Kings were winning Stanley Cups, all of a sudden hockey became cool. And the kids growing up there said, you know what? 
yeah, the Lakers are cool, the Dodgers, but I'm going to go try this hockey thing. Is this Wayne Gretzky, right? Wayne Gretzky. So consumer psychology, man. Exactly. exactly It's like what the big bump outside of, you know, David Stern was brilliant in the late eighties to, to take value focus on teams to players because he had uh, bird magic Jordan. Um, the NFL tends to focus more on teams. They're in a different place because they, they, they get the value shift that can happen with Tom Brady, right? That's already, con- we're starting to see that more. Yep. Um, it, it's actually entering a really dynamic place right now where sometimes I forget Tom's even getting ready for a season, yep. the amount of media that he's putting out. And he's even able to talk about his former teammates in the, in the past, like, you're traded. You don't mention the Patriots. Like people will kill you. And he's like able to do that. He's not missing right now, in my opinion, and uh, and still going to have a kick-ass season. And that's really threatening at a macro level to the NFL. Um, and so we think about like how are we driving value? We believe in more the David Stern method to the players and rising tides lifting all boats. And people align more with players. What? what music did to the NBA in the nineties where a lot of the best hip hop artists wanted to be hoopers. A lot of the best hoopers wanted to be hip hop artists. I actually see an environment right now with TikTok blowing up and that being like the, the, the primary source of conversation across media right now, most TikTokers who are 18 to 22 play lacrosse and we're like doing collaborations with them. And so there's, and they have 40 million followers. So there's, they may be what hip hop was the hoops to professional lacrosse in 2022 and 23. That's super interesting. It's just, it's so amazing. I mean, obviously this is the first time we've ever spoken. I can just see you guys have such incredible vision. You have such incredible kind of thoughts and big picture thinking and, and taking little bits and pieces from other successful leagues or maybe learning from less successful leagues. So let's, let's talk specifically about what you guys are doing, doing now with premier uh, lacrosse league compare it to the national lacrosse league the major league lacrosse who you guys merge with like what are you guys doing now that puts you in such a, a more relevant seat than maybe some of your predecessors and like and then again in this idea of big picture thinking and being long-term you know high level planners like where do you guys see it going yeah so our our, our big challenge was not just the lacrosse reputation the way participation is trended, like we've talked about, but it was also the existing professional environment, which, which was confusing. So you have indoor lacrosse, which is the NOL. Then you had major league lacrosse, which was the outdoor league. And we first tried to buy major league lacrosse their, their viewpoint. And, and you'll see it come to life in the dock uh, because that was uh, the premise of, of, of most of it. And we recorded all of the behind the scenes of how we built the PLL. Their premise was like, Hey, Lacrosse is beachfront property, and uh, as the game continues to grow and its recognition and participation, we're just going to own the pro asset and we'll get all the value from it. They weren't working on it, so it's not. It would be like Jerry Jones or Mark Cuban in their respective leagues, just sitting over top of the Dallas Cowboys and Dallas Mavericks. Those guys are full time on those businesses. They're not passive investors, and there were passive investors in pro lacrosse. So we couldn't get a deal together, so we built the PLL. Then we were head to head with MLL. After 2020, we ended up acquiring them, um, and uh, and then we were able to, as a result, be able to merge its assets in and and prepare for the future. So right now, the environment is cleaner. There's indoor lacrosse, there's NLL, there's outdoor lacrosse, the PLL. They're in the winter, where in the summer, and our play a lot of our players do both. 
Um, but now it's incumbent on us to be able to tell a, a really succinct message because that still is confusing with two different leagues for a general consumer. So to your point, and I appreciate your compliment around vision, I try to think um, at a high level and then also make sure I'm operating at, at the ground level. And that means we have to have incredible executives that are uh, putting pen to paper, picking up the phone, going into the communities and, and building these deals that we're thinking about because just a bunch of ideas or a bunch of ideas if you don't execute on them. Um, so message is really important, but executing is even more. This type of conversation is message. So I appreciate you allowing me to come on and talk and, and share our story. Oh, I love it. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you guys are doing. I, I've read up a lot in, in preparation of this interview to make sure I understood the landscape and whatnot. I became more fascinated by what you guys are building, the messaging, the access, you know, and just growing a game that I've always been aware of. But lacrosse to me was my uh, one last quick story. And I'll let you go. When when my dad, my dad was a, a high school PE teacher, and he was our football coach, and I had an older brother, and he came home one day with two lacrosse sticks, and a lacrosse ball from like PE. Yeah. And um, so lacrosse to us was the two of us would go in the backyard, and we had like a, like a lawn chair that would sit against the wall. And that was the goal. And we would in essence play one-on-one -on -one basketball, but with lacrosse, right? If you miss, yeah. you got to take it back to half court and we would just play on one, but we were running circles around his grass playing one-on-one -on -one lacrosse as, you know, middle school, high school kids that he's like, you guys can't play anymore. You're ruining my grass. Get out of here. Go in the driveway, go in the road. And then, so like, to me, that was lacrosse. Lacrosse was just playing in the backyard, but we never played anything organized. So I guess my point is like to hear your vision and to hear where you guys are trying to take the PLL and, and that messaging and all that. I'm, I can't wait to see the documentary. You guys, it's coming out here. You mentioned it um, here soon. So I, I appreciate for for joining us, Paul, and sharing kind of the vision. I, I'm a fan now. I'm going to take my kids. We're going to come watch a game one of these yes. days. I'm, I might hit you up for some tickets. Yes, we'll, we'll host you. And I do have to add one thing because I, I love your, your messaging and, and the purpose of this show. Um, well, maybe two things. So Bill Belichick grew up playing lacrosse. You mentioned Hoags. Uh, yeah. I played with him last year. He's such a great guy. And then this past week at the ESPYs, I was with uh, Travis Kelsey, yeah, who grew up playing lacrosse. You guys would be beasts if you played in the PLL. All right, here's now here's my here's my message. I, I wanted to make sure I said this on the show um, for all the parents and kids that are uh, dealing with the youth environment right now, which is really difficult to navigate. I know a lot of them is just basically like, all right, my kid loves lacrosse. My kid loves basketball. My kid loves soccer. How do I get them into college to play? And that's where the pressure lives. For a sport like lacrosse, uh, it's a combination, I think, of all the best disciplines. Contact of football, endurance of soccer, agility of hoops, hand-eye coordination of baseball, hockey. Um, and what we see so much of now is sports specialization. And that happens so early. I don't know about you, but I played multiple sports all the way through high school. and. Uh, you have to make a decision that I get it. If you're playing full-time lacrosse, your stick skills are going to be better as a 12 year old than if you were like me at 12 and only playing during the spring. But was what I was able to tap into and you brought this up and become a better college player than most and a better pro player than most is I had this unknown potential where because I played hoops, because I played soccer, because I played hockey and football and track and field, I started adding those skill sets to my game in lacrosse. And that's why I kept improving. So the decision you have to make is, do you want your kid to be the best 
that he or she can be? If so, playing multiple sports and learning athletic disciplines across the board is more valuable than just the short-term gains because you're playing a sport more in the near term. So long-term investment, I would suggest multiple sports. Short-term, you know what you're going to get out of it, but it's not going to pay the same dividend. Uh, and that's what I wanted to say. So thanks for having me on that. Of course, man. Well, I appreciate that message. That was really well said. And that's pretty much the whole basis of our show is exploring all of those different avenues. So Paul, I really appreciate it. Best of luck with everything. We're going to be following what you guys are building there is special and uh, we wish you the best of luck. And uh, I look forward to following along and seeing what big, big things you guys have in store. Appreciate it, man. I appreciate it, Paul. Thank you so much. I hope you guys really enjoyed that conversation with Paul Rabel, the co-founder of Premier Lacrosse League. Um, they, they are exploding. I mean, you you put on uh, TV, you put on network or cable TV, they, they're everywhere. Um, Paul really has a great vision for where he wants to take that league and the professionalization of lacrosse. And and also, I, I just found it really interesting to see you know the, the connection points and how relevant it is to growing the game at the professional level, but also simultaneously growing the game at the youth level and making it more accessible, making a little bit more of a relatable sport across across the country. So I, I think Paul and his partners have a great vision. You you, can, you heard it firsthand. So that was um, that was super in- interesting for me. I don't have a great lacrosse background, but it was um, again. I just think a really cool conversation for us to share. Continue to share resources. Continue to share different um, you know different pieces of this puzzle that is the youth sports kind of ecosystem. So. Thanks again to to Paul Rabel for joining us. And at this time, um, the much-awaited end of our episode Q&A with my producer, Tasha. Tasha, what's up? What do you have for us today? What do you have for us today? This is is an interesting one. Um, Someone sent in this question. It says, how does a young athlete communicate to a coach that something they said hurt their feelings? I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. I think it goes to something that we've talked a lot about, which is, you know, really teaching your kid to be their own advocate, right? Mm. Teaching their kid that at, you know, at a certain age, they need to take responsibility for their own, for their own journey. And part of that journey is dealing with adults and dealing with coaches and dealing with feed, you know, with feedback you might not be comfortable with or, or, you know, whatever the case may be. So specifically to this, I think my, my first instinct would be to my kid is, Hey, you need to pull your coach aside before or after practice where it's just the two of you and you need to feel confident that you can share what made you upset and give the coach an opportunity to either clarify or you know maybe take back and apologize and reconsider his words reconsider what he said to you you know oftentimes in the midst of a practice or in the midst of a game you know things are said that can be taken the wrong way or taken the right way you know in, in this case Maybe the coach really did say something that you found offensive. And I think to teach your kid that they can advocate for themselves, speak up, communicate with their coach, say, hey, coach, last game, you know, you said this, you know, again, and give the coach a chance to to address it. And and hopefully if it, you know, if it, if it gets worse or it continues, then of course the, the parent needs to get involved. But the first crack, I would try to let my kid advocate on behalf of themselves and hopefully learn to deal with hard conversations um, before you know, as a parent feeling like I needed to get involved. So I think that's a great question. Has a kid or from any of your teams ever pulled you aside and did that with you? You know, they haven't. I mean, have I been hard on kids before? Yeah, but it was probably my own kid. So I had some conversations, you know, before we went to bed <laughs> that night where, you know, we'd, we'd talk it out with my own kid or whatnot. But, you know, I, I always, I, my my thing is I am hard on the kids. I demand a lot of them, but I, I never make it personal, right? I never attack them as people. 
right? And we used to have a saying, you know, in, in the NFL where we attack problems, not people, right? Like just because you're not fielding the ball correctly or just because you're not, you know, doing the right technique or you're not listening, I, I, I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm not saying I don't want you on my team. I'm not saying I don't like you. I'm saying we need to change your actions. We need to change your behavior. We need to change your attitude or, you know, whatever it is, but I'm not attacking you at your core of the person you are. You're, you're probably a nice kid. You're a good kid. We just need to see different inputs so that the outputs can be a little bit better. So, you know, we don't attack people. We don't criticize the kid. We, but we are going to correct things that they're not doing right. Because at the end of the day, the kid's success is the ultimate objective. And in order for them to have success, they need to be told when things are good and they need to be told when things aren't good. And, um, you know, communication between a coach and a player is critical. Yeah, that's good. The next question says, what podcasts do you listen to? You know, that's a really good question. So my wife and yeah. I were driving, we were driving home. We were, we were away for the weekend we had like a four hour car trip and she's like, let's listen to a podcast. And I'll be honest, we don't really have, I I'd be, I'd love for our listeners to like recommend one. Obviously you think is a great podcast if anyone's not currently aware of it, but, um, no, I, I don't consume a lot of podcasts. I, I listen to a lot of books on tape, actually, but I need to kind of dive into the podcast world, especially now, you know, seeing the other end of it and, you know, how interesting and informative they can be. Um, I'm opening, I'm open to listener recommendations of a really cool series that, that people would think that I would like. So uh, I, I right now am not listening to any. So I'm open. I'm, I'm all ears. Books on tape. What's the last book on tape that you listen to? I read a really cool book. Well, I guess I listened to a really cool book um, by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, it was called uh, The Bomber Mafia. And it was just, a, I, I've read almost all the Malcolm Gladwell books. I just think they're fascinating. Outliers is the one he's most famous for. There's one Shout called out Talking. Malcolm. Shout out, out Malcolm. Show. If you ever want to come on the show, if you know Malcolm Gladwell yeah. and you can get him on the show, I mean, we'd be eternally grateful because he's like a dream guest. Um He's just really a good storyteller. His his books are super interesting. So yeah, I, I listened to um, the Bomber Mafia was the last one that I've read, but um, I've read a bunch of his and and others. So that was a really fascinating book. If anyone hasn't read it, it's pretty cool. Nice. And then the last fan question we have this week says, "What moment from a guest this season has really stuck out to you?" Oh God, you know, there's, there's a lot, you know, there, there seems to be one little nugget, one, one aspect of the conversation with every guest that just really like catches you. And you says, all right, this is why we had this person on. This is why this story is so relevant and so interesting. You know, I always find myself going back, you know, our first ever episode, we're actually going to have him on here again, um, as our first recurring, uh, guest, um, Dr. Michael Gervais. And I think just his conversation in episode one of you think just really set the table for this entire journey. And and a lot of the conversation that I had with him are now the questions and the things that I bring up to our guests that have come behind him. And, uh, you know, we had the opportunity to, to just speak with him again. It's going to be coming out here in a couple of weeks. And I just think he brings such a unique perspective, not only from a clinical perspective, being a, you know, a psychologist and, and really understanding how people, human behavior, but also just as a parent and just as a, as a person and an individual and just understanding relationships and communication and whatnot, which is so relevant to what our discussion is here on you think. So he's somebody that I think really set the table for what, for what this project was going to be. And, um, but you know, I, I can think of every single guest we've interviewed and just, you know, one particular nugget that's jumped out that I just carried away with me and said, all right, man, I gotta, I gotta, you know, carry that and put it in my pocket and use it. So 
our guests have been incredible um, the entire time. Yeah, all of our guests have been amazing. And the listeners have been amazing too. So we just want to thank you guys so much for sending in questions. And you could always submit it at Greg Olson or at you think on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. You got it. And thank you so much, Tasha, for always joining us here at the end of each episode. And uh, again, we we encourage you guys to rate, review, subscribe. Uh, You can find us wherever you find your podcasts. And uh, until next week, we look forward to seeing you guys for another episode here on You Think.